0: wonderful to see all of you seated and eating quietly, um, and you continue to do so. But I think we'll proceed with our uh, lunchtime panel. Uh, Well, it's really a panel of two. We might call it the duet of Rabbi uh, Yehuda Sarna and Imam Latif, both of them from New York University. And as I said, both of them involved in uh, campus, if you can call that, it is a campus, New York University campus chaplaincy, and in uh, innovative programs with Jewish and Muslim students, but also over some very difficult issues that are part of campuses across the country. And without going into an immense uh, biography of each of them, uh, both very distinguished and both uh, very uh, relational in the work that they do. So they have planned to take a a few minutes, half an hour, and talk uh, together uh, about their work at NYU. Could I have you seated here if you want to be seated or you can stand. I'm gonna give each of you a mic.
1: That was pretty
2: compelling. I think there's a a reason why they want us to stand. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> if I was seated, I don't think anyone could see me. So. <laughs> uh,
1: well, first of all, Diana, thank you so much for having us. I don't know if you understand what it's like for us to, to be here and to see you. Because we've been um, reading you and teaching you for over a decade. And um, you, you are, uh, you're a titan. In, in our eyes, and a pioneer, and um, one who has provided the intellectual framework for our work and for the work of so many others. So, as you're celebrating the 25th um, anniversary of the Pluralism Project, uh, I just wanted to say that our conversation—you should take our conversation as something of um, tribute, uh, because you really. You've done it. And and I know that your style is always to be very collaborative and to pass the spotlight on to others, and, and we are very grateful also, of course, to all the other researchers and graduate students and undergraduate students who've worked with you, but your leadership has been particularly of note, so we just wanted to start on that note. Uh, My name is is Yehuda Sarna. Uh, I've been working at NYU since 2002. Uh, And um, over over these past 15 years, uh, we've observed something of a transformation of the campus climate. And one of the things that's really come into focus for us in being at a campus in the shadow of what used to be the Twin Towers is that the miniaturization of the world is bringing us into contact with more and more cultures, with greater and greater frequency, and with higher and higher stakes. And the essential challenge of the 21st century is to figure out how can we remain rooted in our own identity while somehow being respectful, accepting, and learning from others. We're not gonna be able to get away from that. And uh, there are gonna be people who will opt out and will prefer either uh, a fundamentalist or isolationist approach, and others who will opt out by relinquishing whatever it is they, whatever um, tether they had to uh, a sense of group identity. But my, my conviction is that, that there's gotta be that middle way, and that's a skill, n- not a born talent. It's a skill that can be taught. And I believe that now, more than ever, we are at an inflection point, a point of urgency, a point where our university campuses are uh, uh, harboring populations as diverse as have ever been seen. And for many of the people who who are coming through campuses, it's the time when they are likely in the most diverse environment that they will be in their entire life. And so therefore, this is the moment where they can either be taught how to engage while remain firmly rooted, or they can be taught that the world will remain balkanized, that the world will remain fragmented, and that bridges are more easily destroyed than built. And so I wanted to, uh, to ask Khalid, and we, you know, we've been working together very closely for the past uh, 10 years, 11 years, uh, just to share a little bit about what makes
2: this moment so urgent. Yeah. Well, thank you all for having us uh, and to echo Yehuda's sentiments. Um, It's truly an honor to be here and to also meet you in person. Um, I'm usually just in one kind of emotional phase, which is just extreme stoicness. Uh, This is me really excited. I think where we're at right now uh, is a very critical juncture, as Yehuda said. The idea that our work, you know, positions itself around faith and spirituality um, can be something that, if we look at it with a little bit more nuance, um, fits in more broadly into a lot of the conversations we see taking place on a national level. Uh, Things that give us an insight into, at least in my opinion, mainly the challenges that we're facing, tied to elements of race, ethnicity, privilege, and class and how that relates in and of itself to faith-based communities, spiritual communities, the complexity of individuals that we engage in day-to-day at our university, um, how does see this, right? We're on a campus that has 40, 50,000 students, and so the populations that we engage uh, are not just in the hundreds, but you're talking about 18,000 Catholic students, 7,000 Jewish students, 3,000 Muslim students, thousands of Protestants, Hindus, Buddhists, atheists, agnostics, I mean the list can go on and on. And the uniqueness of a New York City is that it is arguably one of the most diverse cities in the world. NYU mimics that diversity, and the opportunity is there to harness that diversity into a much needed pluralism that our society is really in need of right now. Uh, but there's also that much ease to just kind of fit into your own comfortable bubble and not engage anybody in any capacity. And the way that we see many university structures moving, uh, I would say is in one of two frames. You know, acknowledging the need to move beyond diversity in and of itself as being the achievement, look at how different we are from one another, and taking a step towards saying, how do we harness that into a much needed pluralism, that educates and fills gaps within our student demographic in such a way that as they go into the workforce, they're now not just carrying within themselves preconceived ideas and notions of those that they've come into interaction with simply through media imagery and political apparatus, but through real lived interaction, being able to understand the realities and experiences of those that are distinct from them and recognize that they have a name and a narrative that's much bigger than the boxes that society at times puts them in, based off of the color of their skin, the texture of their hair, the accent of the language that they're speaking in, anything that turns into a mechanism of segmentation. Um, And where the urgency is, and I think the unfortunate reality that we find ourselves in, is a lot of the times we have to now air reactively to deal with crisis situations, right? We were just talking on the way over about how great it would be if we had a day that didn't bring about another emergency situation, you know, where there was somebody else that was going through some kind of crisis. And you know, not to look at the subjectiveness of one's pain and belittle it in any way. If someone's going through something, they're going through something. But the things that we're seeing day to day are quite severe and quite serious. Uh, and they're not happening in a vacuum, they're happening in a much bigger frame. What we try to teach our students is that their engagement of the other is not necessarily tied to just mere moments of interaction, but for them to be able to recognize and understand how the power dynamic necessitates them at times leveraging their own privilege in ways to serve those that are more underserved. So I'll share a couple of anecdotes with you to kind of illustrate what it is that I'm saying and where we're kind of at. Uh, especially on a campus climate level. Um, In the previous panel, the moderator was mentioning how Pope Francis was somebody that he looks up to. Um, I had the privilege of actually meeting Pope Francis when he was in the States on his last visit here. He and I spoke together at the Ground Zero Memorial site uh, to an audience of about 400 people, city officials, celebrities, activists, faith leaders, uh, but a global audience of the millions as something only the Pope could really command. Uh, And to be with somebody like this was most remarkable. I mean, an individual who understands what his set of values are, what his principles are, and how his existence is not really feeding into a simple egocentricity, but how he can uniquely tie and touch so many beyond his primary constituency. And a lot of people asked me after he and I had spoken together, uh, you know, what was it like to meet the Pope? And it was really interesting, the question I got asked the most for some reason was, Uh, You know, what did he smell like? And I said, you know, he smelled really great. I don't know. (laughs) Old man smell, what do you want me to tell you? A week after he and I spoke together, I was speaking at Case Western University, and a young woman there asked me, what was it like to meet the Pope? I said, you know, it was remarkable. People lined up for hours to see this man's car drive by, not even hear him. There was people who had a deep relationship with their Catholicism, people who had no relationship with their Catholicism, people who weren't even Catholic. They were just so moved by his message, and they wanted to be in his presence. And instead, all of his messages were scripted on that tour. He was reading them off of a piece of paper. And the night before he and I spoke together, he spoke at a very well-known cathedral in New York City called St. Patrick's Cathedral to an audience of a few thousand who had gathered there to hear him. And these were people who, anything he would say, they would just take it as fact. Things that they would pass on to their children and their children's children, just to be in his presence, to hear him speak, maybe even get to shake his hand, talk to him for a few seconds. And I said that night, he decided to go off script. And he started his remarks by first praying for 700 Muslims who had died that morning while performing the pilgrimage to Mecca, the Hajj. And I said to that young woman, why do you think he would do something like that? He's in the city where the 9-11 attacks took place. The relationship between Muslim community, law enforcement, governmental apparatus is tenuous at best. Nobody would have faulted him had he not done it. They wouldn't have said, I can't believe you didn't pray for those Muslims. What's wrong with you? He simply did it because he felt it was the right thing to do. This is a man who chooses to eat with the homeless rather than politicians. A man who asked his global constituency to take in Syrian refugees when many of the world's leaders, including elected officials in our own country, were looking for every reason to keep them out and are still doing so. A person who understands his existence as being much bigger than he himself. And that's the essential pursuit, I think, of the work we do on an academic level and on a co-curricular level, and what New York University has afforded us the opportunity to do. When many universities are stepping away from religious programs, spiritual life, pretending as if it's not something that really makes a difference, we've seen through data analysis and statistics that the gross majority of student events, programs, and services on our campus of 50,000 take place by spiritual and religious groups. And the way that we can harness organically their coming together and allow for them to now carry themselves not through a uniformity of the external, but a uniformity that's internal through multiple points of interaction that allow for them to engage the other in meaningful ways is what it is that we're really looking to do. And when you juxtapose the example of a Pope Francis to the realities of racism, hatred, and bigotry that we see deeply embedded and entrenched on individual as well as systemic and structural levels in a lot of the institutions that we surround ourselves in day to day, that's what these students are getting bombarded with. And the challenge isn't that there is people who are informing them in such a manner that pushes them further away from each other, but there's seemingly more so a shortage of individuals who are telling them that even if they don't buy into that rhetoric, they have to speak out against it. And so I wanted to share with you one example uh, of a young woman who just yesterday had reached out to us on our campus, a sophomore at NYU, uh, who's a Muslim girl, her name is Asma. And, you know, some of her language is a little explicit, but she's not speaking in her own voice, but of things that were said to her, and she said, today was the toughest day that I had, meaning yesterday, maybe ever. This morning started off with a man tailgating me for about five minutes only to pull over next to me, curse me out, yell racial slurs at me, and tell me to go effing back for another five minutes. I filed a police report, cried it off, and went on to class. Then I walked into the school, as I always do, and entered into an event that was hosted with a speaker by the name of Anthony McCarthy called the Changing Terrorist Threat. 15 years after 9-11. In hindsight, I don't know how the university could have brought him in. It was the most demeaning, derogatory, bigoted talk I've been to, and I was only there for the question and answers. Of the many horrendous things that were said, some of the statements Mr. McCarthy made were, Muslims in America need to be religiously and racially profiled, because that's the price we need to pay for safety. The reality is all the bombings made in America are by Muslims, so Muslims need to all be put on the radar. The NYPD's report, Radicalization in the West, the Homegrown Threat, needs to be relegitimized and used by the NYPD. And Esma says, even the NYPD acknowledged the wrongness in it, and this dude commends it. Mr. McCarthy then looked at me in the eye and said, I need to be religiously and racially profiled. Asma is a Muslim girl who wears a headscarf, a hijab, that the surveillance on me and invasion of my privacy and other rights is a necessity. He said, I'm sorry if you're offended, verbatim, but that's the reality. And Asma says, that's privilege. He's asking if I'm offended, are you kidding me? My life is at risk each day I go to school because I wear hijab because law enforcement agencies delegitimize the narrative on Islamophobia by passing most assaults on Muslims as non-hate crimes. My mosque has informants spying on our charity activities. My whole childhood is one where I was subject to harassment because of my choice to exercise my freedom of religion. And here you are telling me I'm offended." And then as she goes on, she says, "'What hurt more than his stupid statements was the fact that there were actually students in the audience nodding their heads, agreeing to what he was saying. And the rest were just dead silent. Not a person got up to say that, yeah, I'm in the same class as Asma and We're Friend, and she's not a terrorist. She shouldn't be harassed by law enforcement. You know she's just a human being like us. Now, in a school that has 50,000, we can't say that The work that we do with about 70 other chaplains, a great multicultural and educational program, a variety of other affairs offices are hitting up each one. But the direction that we're going in is to be able to acknowledge realities like this, the impact it has on students not just in the moment but in the long term and beyond the direct recipient of that kind of rhetoric, what it's doing in terms of real socialization and awareness of those who are kind of sitting there. And what we've seen in the last 10 years that I think is remarkable is that there's that many more students now who are speaking up, who are understanding that they don't have to be a woman to speak up for women's rights, they don't have to be black to speak up for black people's rights, they don't have to be Muslim to speak up for Muslim people's rights. An attack on any of us is an attack on all of us. And I think the university affords for us that unique ground to really be able to come together and have those conversations, not just on a surface level or more theoretically, but then add in elements on a co-curricular level that help to fill in gaps that exist just in terms of real exposure to diversity at every frame so that as we're putting students out into the workforce, the tables that they're sitting at now that'll impact policy and institutional development have present not merely those who are not physically there in the form of preconceived ideas and notions, but the best perspectives that we could have of them so that we don't see infringement on a day-to-day basis as we do and, and inequity as we do. So
1: the key question is not how do we stop things like this from happening? That is a very important question, but the reality is that when the temperature in the political culture in our country rises, these kinds of things are gonna happen. The key question is how do universities deal with this? So this student felt comfortable enough to approach Khalid, who was recognized as a university chaplain. Khalid, in turn, sends this, uh, it was a Facebook post. Um, he sends this, at, it was around 11 o'clock, 11.30 at night to a team of deans and vice presidents with whom we work regularly who know that Khalid who, uh, who know that Khalid does not he's not uh, he doesn't cry wolf he's a serious person he's not bored he's got plenty of other work to do if he's emailing them at 11 11:30 at night it means something is important which then sparks a an email thread which goes through the night okay 11.30, 11.53, 12.30, 12.18, 12.30, 4.28 a.m., 630, 6.35 a.m. Through the night, I was, how are we going to deal with this? That's the key. Because we know that there are many universities that when something like this happens, a student will not say anything. Or they will go back, they will try to find a safe haven among their closest friends or they will call their parents and say, so I don't know what to do, this happened. But is there a channel, is there a channel through which a student could go and say, there is a, uh, I have a religious role model, there is a, a, a paid staff professional who has the respect of university administrators for whom if I tell them something, they, I have the confidence in them that they will stand up and communicate what it is that I endured and that furthermore there's the confidence on the on the part of that leader that as they approach the university administration that the, that the administration will do something so there have been four elements i would say over the past 10 years which have contributed at new york university to a change in system so here are the places that there've been the four places that there've been disruptions if you will and the creation of new systems. One has been in the very landscape, the real estate, of New York University. There was an opportunity to build a new building on, right on Washington Square Park, which is the focal point of NYU's kind of city campus. And the decision was made to create a global center for academic and spiritual life, which uh, houses, right at the center of NYU's campus, all the religious, spiritual um, student clubs at New York University. It is the hub of activity for all the 70 affiliate chaplains. It is the the meeting ground, not just for these individual student faith organizations, but for student clubs which pull those together. By creating a physical address, and for that uh, building to be seen anytime anyone traverses Washington Square Park sends a very important signal and whenever I give a tour for other people from other schools, certainly from European universities, they see this thing and they say, well, we can't, you know, it's so odd, it's so strange. I mean, it's one thing for universities which are historically, uh, were founded as, as uh, religious institutions to have a chapel or a, a kind of a center right at the middle of their campus, but but for a multi-faith space to be built is quite a statement. So that symbol has been very important. The second thing, second area we've, be, we've begun to disrupt is the academic space. I mean, you all know the, the secularization process that's taken place to the point where all things religious, spiritual, faith-related have been pushed to the margins. And what we work to do, is establish a minor in multi-faith leadership, an academic minor. And uh, the anchor course is taught by both Khalid and myself. Um, and this minor is housed in the School of Social Work and the Wagner School for Public Service, that's NYU School for Leadership, Government, Nonprofit Management. Um, and we met resistance, of course. Uh, some people were worried that we were just having this course so that we could convert people. Uh, we didn't know exactly how to deal with that given that we belong to two different religions Uh, and we weren't about to um, compete in the classroom Um, but what we found is that once we established this minor and other department schools realized that there is something to do here with rigor, that the work of the Pluralism Project and others is serious academic work and there's a field to be had. There's a discipline to build. Uh, We began receiving invitations from different schools to to start offering courses. So now in the business school, there's a mindfulness (coughs) course being taught. And and, uh, there are numerous other schools which have similarly sought us out. The thing that we're working on now in the education school is the possibility of a doctoral program, a PhD program, which trains campus clergy campus ministry, and um, and we will need to see how this will develop. The third space has to do with our, um, the residential life, and there too, what we've had is, um, NYU has these themed floors, and one of these floors is in fact spirituality in the city. What makes this unique is that both Khaled's family and my family live there, and so, um, you have to think about, it, as a college student, what it's like living on the same floor. as a rap- You know, When this building first opened, they asked my next-door neighbor uh, what he thought about this, and he said, well, the truth is, uh, he said this in the school newspaper, I-, I don't really like it because now I'm still doing all the same things I would normally do, but now I feel guilty about it. <laughs> but having us in the building... Uh, and seeing our families interact and even uh, for a period of time shared a nanny Uh, and seeing how organic the relationship was has been an important thing to the point where um, where when all the residence hall directors gathered for their intensive training one of the things that the school did is they had us come and speak to them as 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 a model and then the fourth has to do with the broader mission of the university, and that's that I would call public engagement. So, Diana, before you reference the, this documentary that we worked on, and now through various portals, um, we've been utilizing this, this center, the physical space, uh, and the academic platform as a way of engaging the public in very, uh, in very relevant and pertinent conversations, recognizing that universities play ve- can play a very important role in public life. And I would say it's become so a part of NYU's culture that one of the ways, in one of the most diverse cities in the world, that NYU can, can educate the public has to do with religious and spiritual pluralism. So those are some of the building blocks. So, and when we go to other universities, which is pretty frequently, probably more frequently than we'd like, but what we do is in conversations with faculty, with student leaders, with administrators, we say, here are the four things. Uh, that's the way it happened. Not every school is the same, and of course, a lot of local differences. This didn't happen according to a specific plan. These, pro- these were all processes that evolved organically. Uh, but in retrospect, we see the way these are mutually uh, generative, and the way one feeds the other, the importance of having uh, an address, the importance of having visibility at recognizing people's hesitancy in different spots to keep uh, any conversation about religion out, while students at the same time are pushing to have it in. They want to be acknowledged as, as whole people. And, um, and these are the elements. I think that is the key question. Yes, things like what Khaled described are going to happen, but the question is, are the systems in place
2: to deal with it? I, I don't know how much time we have left. Good,
1: but uh, okay. yeah. a
2: questions This is the last piece before we open up to Q&A, is I think beyond the kind of reactive mode, um, what we find also is just the opportunity to do really beneficial work. So we're not just teaching our students and our campus community to kind of be there to deal with all those things that are wrong and terrible, but also to be able to then utilize the unique relationships that they form with those that they could fully get away with not building those relationships with, and to leverage them to do productive, beneficial work. Right. So it's one thing to say, speak out against that which is not good, but also in the most simplistic sense to go out there and do those things that are good. And what we've found when we've been engaged by University administrations, other than our own, uh, invitations by student affairs officers, um, provosts, etc. A lot of the time, when they deal with this frame, if at all, is usually to try to deescalate some type of problem. That's the only right. time it they comes They just want the radar. problem to go
1: away. Yeah.
2: So it's like, how do we fix this? Right? It's like, come here and tell us. You know, like, <laughs> oh, what are we going to tell you what to do? Um, And that's part of the problem, and I think having a robust institution that allows for you to think strategically in the long term uh, lets you preemptively deal with many things, um, even when it goes into crisis mode, and not have to restart everything because you're now utilizing religion in a different frame. We don't do so much that emphasizes theological, or legalistic kind of frames of interaction, but our primary focus is to look at religion beyond a phenomenon, understand that it is a tool by which society is engaged. It's not going away, you know, much to dismay of many people or their projections. So how do we harness it and turn it into a mechanism uh, that's a positive force in, in society? In the campus setting, the ideal setting for something like that because now students are coming together and engaging each other in a very formative period of their identity. So,
1: so I'll tell you when that, when that um, incident happened here, uh, I wrote an article in the, which ran in the, in the New York Jewish media and the headline was, um, Right Spirit, Wrong Partners. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea was to say, there has to be more conversation. There has to be more listening. Um, The question is, who, who are you in dialogue with? It's extremely important for voices, for stories to come out, but if the conversation is framed politically, as someone was speaking about earlier, just the extreme binaries, you're not gonna get anywhere. That's not a conversation. And what we see really in truth is that of course there are religious dimensions to the conflict, but the political conflict is not the same as the relationship globally between Jews and Muslims. And so, uh, you know, our our work is mostly focused on having a Jewish-Muslim conversation, not filtered through the political conflict of Israel-Palestine, but instead to get people to know each other face-to-face, hear each other's stories, and for that personal element to then inform their their political view. Um, I don't know Khaled if you have anything you wanna say about that.
2: Yeah, you know I I think one of the things that happens on our campus is um, effective conversation as well as uh, understanding around this issue and many other issues given the dynamic that exists um, in terms of I think more equitable representation of underrepresented minority populations on our campus, right? Um, So I'll give you an example. Uh, You know, three summers ago, um, when the escalation of violence in Gaza, you know, was what it was, um, populations decimated, homes are still, you know, buildings are still destroyed. uh, We had students who came to see me, who were Muslim, uh, during our month of fasting, and they said, uh, would it be okay for us to organize some type of prayer service and remembrance for those who have kind of been killed, right? Families, children, etc. And I couldn't understand there was a hesitancy in their voice and I would say, why? Like, yeah, of course, why would you not do that? And then the first question they asked was, well, wouldn't we get in trouble if we did it? And I said, why would you get in trouble? And then the second session question they asked was, we don't want to get anyone upset with us. And that mindset has to be understood because on a campus kind of arena in the country right now, there's probably about two to three dozen Muslim chaplaincies, um, many of whom are not funded in any capacity, institutional apparatus in the Muslim community for a variety of reasons, not for a lack of trying, but you know, we understand it not in a vacuum, but the realities of relationship with government, scrutinization of charitable giving, you know, detainment, deportations, etc. cetera, it makes it hard to build when the people who you think would have your back when you're building are the ones who are pushing you down the most. Um, get us to a place where in the mindset of many Muslims that you can then parallel to the mindset of many minority populations on campus is such that there's no point in trying because we don't represent kind of those who come from either the majority or the privilege, and everything is looked in the frame of hesitancy and timidness. And I think what we've been able to do on our campus is acknowledge that there are multiple narratives tied to this issue like there are in many different issues, but the ability to find even a starting point in the conversation necessitates that everybody has an equal place at a table, whatever that table looks like and whatever the format that it is. The other thing that we found was that there just wasn't room for people to really mourn in certain situations, right? That the ability to be able to acknowledge that your struggle actually is real somehow will invalidate me and my understanding of my struggle. So how can I give to you any type of validation or acknowledgement, because somehow that'll lessen my commitment to what it is that I believe or what I uphold. And beyond an individual capacity, what will that mean in terms of like communal responsibility? And I think where the strategy comes in, in terms of long-term engagement, not just in the aftermath of a conflict, you sit down and you talk to someone, but you build a robust relationship that lets you come to a place of recognition that, at times, the conversations aren't even being had in ways that allow for us to think of remedies and solutions because the people who are at the table having those conversations, they're not really considered to be equals in the conversations. And not even by the people at the table, but by individuals that are external uh, that you know, may or may not think it's the best situation. I'll give you one example really quickly, and I'm sorry I talk a lot. I was at a convening recently for an Uh, a group of people who came together to talk about Islamophobia, anti-Muslim sentiment. Editors of major newspapers, congresspeople, politicians. We're having a conversation, there's a congressman sitting next to me. And a presentation was given on Islamophobia in the country at this moment, and the congressman responds at the end of it and says, this is really great, but it doesn't acknowledge my fear. And he was asked, what do you mean? And he said, for example, I would never get on Egyptian air because I'm afraid that the pilot would fly me into a building and blow all of us up. And this is a convening of people who are working against Islamophobia, right? Just keep that in mind. So I'm sitting next to him, we're sitting this close. I started having a conversation with him, you know, going back and forth. The first couple of things he said, that makes sense and he's listening. And then you know, I said to him, what would you feel if I said I wasn't comfortable around you as an elderly Caucasian male, given the number of people who fit into your demographic who have committed mass shootings in the last number of years. And he got quiet and he said, you know, that's very judgmental of you. (laughs) And I said, you know, but what's critical here is I don't want you to think about our direct conversation, the woman who is facilitating the conversation standing in front of everybody who is the convener, every time I spoke, she would shake her head, and every time that the other man spoke, she didn't say anything. And now when we finished up, and she finished it quite abruptly, where I felt we were getting to a place in a conversation, she adjourned, and immediately she came and she sat and she talked to me. And she had done so under good intentions, And I'm listening to her and I said to her, ma'am, what do you think everyone in this room right now thinks is happening? That I just had an exchange with somebody else in this group, you're only talking to me and you're not talking to anybody else. Even if they don't know what the content is of this, what do you think they're thinking? And I said, do you have any plan to go and speak to him in a similar way? And she said, if you want me to, I will. And I said, Why don't you want to yourself? And I said, if you don't engage that, that's why these things are gonna keep happening. So the way we have the conversation is very critical. And what a lot of universities do right now is just want to say we had a conversation, and then that's it. It's a band-aid and it's not fixing anything.
1: I mean, that's, uh, I would say that that's, that's very right. I mean, I would say 80% of my time is spent as the director of the Jewish Center and 20% is on broader university issues. Ve- I very much believe in that. I mean, I think there are too many models that I see of, um, of leaders in the interfaith space who just are not able to tug uh, the, their imagined community along with them. And so I believe it's essential to have at least a foot in, in both
2: we're still working. It happened literally at 4 a.m. this morning.
1: Oh yeah, yeah. oh this was, this was on our, yeah, this was so last night you. and this morning. And, and, then, so we talking, and then, then we got on a train. then we got on a train at 6 in the morning. But that's I mean, how should a university respond? Yeah. Well, I think what we want to see is accountability for whoever it is who brought that speaker. Right, we want, we want that person to, to know, for it to register with them, that <coughs> That that kind of thing is not is not okay. And we want to put them face to face with the people who feel aggrieved by it, and we'd also like to we'd like to see. Uh, I mean, I think the beginnings of this on the email thread were occurring. Uh, you know, a task force with with a with a quick response time, so that there doesn't have to be a hundred people on an email thread to decide, but four or five people are empowered to to make a decision.
2: So the grouping. Um that I had emailed last night was of uh, university leadership that I had also convened about a month and a half ago, two months ago, um, when the potential for our major holiday tied to the Hajj, Eid al-Adha, was still up in the air whether it would be on September 11th or not. So we came together for about two or three hours, individuals who represented various student affairs offices. Um, I laid out kind of ideas and strategies from my end tied to messaging, visibility, Um, you know, how are we dealing with students who are at abroad sites, especially in Europe, where there's an escalation of racism, violence against many people, right? Um, A variety of things, but I think beyond the specifics of what we asked, you know, what is critical to understand is that the two of us share the title of university chaplain at our university. We're the respective directors of our own centers as well, Um, but, our positions are not ceremonial as such. You know, and the work that we've been able to do sees us in a place where there's reciprocity in relationships um, and we're seen as peers. It's not that religion is just here, but it's kind of in the middle of everything and we have to be able to take things seriously. And I think that's where all these things converge, right? The types of programs, events, services, engagement uh, are going to highlight and identify to the apparatus why this is something that is important and needs to be given critical attention to. Um, And there's growth in that, right? If I had sent that email 10 years ago, um, I don't think the same kind of movement would have happened at the same time. The other thing that is coming about is that there's not a lot of precedent for this, right? Um, You don't see models like this elsewhere. So I wish I could say to you, this is exactly what it is that we're doing But one of the things that we're trying to figure out is how to do it well and effectively. And better, and better. And better, so that we can then go to other spaces, right, and be effective beyond just personal anecdotes and charisma and inspirational stories, um, say very substantively and directly, here are like the five, 10 steps that you can take in this way and where it's been effective. I would say to add on to what Yehuda said is one of the things that I'm looking at right now quite extensively, is you know how are we training um, our mental health staff and our wellness center to deal with the nuances and diversity that come from the Muslim student experience, right? From you know race, culture, ethnicity, class, level of religiosity, etc. Because um, the unfortunate reality is that a lot of times when we engage religious community, we do throw th- so through symbols, right? Um, head scarves, beards, etc. Skin color has become a religious symbol today and the way that we engage, you know, students coming from certain backgrounds uh, is indicative not of really who they are, what their needs are, but our perceptions. Um, So there's a lot of things that are going on on there. So the second point, I think that's a really good point.
1: Um, And I think it deserves some serious thinking. On the first, uh, we're not so different. Twenty percent of NYU's undergraduate, uh, the incoming class, are from countries not, that are not the United States. So it does have a, a strong global population. And actually, that, the, 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 um, the internationalization of the student body has been a contributing factor to, uh, to reinforcing <coughs> spiritual diversity because they wanted markers of home, okay, to, to, uh, as many markers of home as possible for people coming from other countries. And so one of the things that we work in our own respective centers is how do we accommodate, how do we create the sense of home for, you know, for for, for students of our faith from all different countries, recognizing that the religious language, if not the vernacular, but the religious language can give them a sense of belonging.
2: I think for us in specific, you know, you're asking how do you deal with diversity? I don't think it, I think there's comparable instances in different religious communities. Um, Within the Muslim context, You know, you have just the beginnings of institutional growth here. So at our center, I worked on my own with a large population for over a decade. About two years ago, I hired an assistant director. Uh, We fundraise everything that we spend operational and programmatically for our centers. Um, This past month, we brought on an associate chaplain to work primarily with Shia students and Shia community. Um, We have a staff psychologist who sees students, uh, you know who are Muslim, Um, and I now have three undergrad staff and three graduate student staff. Um, And that takes time to build, but it necessitates having partners that you can learn from, right? So a lot of my early years were just in understanding the model of the Jewish center, the Catholic center, the Protestant ministry. How do we build something that's sustainable and implement programs and events that would allow for the longevity of something um, with an understanding that we have a diverse community and my role as the ED of the center might keep me from speaking to certain topics because I have to be accessible to multiple students um, or coming from different backgrounds, but that doesn't mean I can't create programs or bring you know, others through multiple entry points, and that's whether it's in the framework of Islam only, in interfaith relationships, you know, cross-cultural relationships. If you look at the Brofman Center, which is our Jewish center, I mean, they have incredibly diverse rabbis that are on staff, That on a personal level, and I'm not speaking on your behalf. I could tell, like I'm a Sunni Muslim, which means I'm not a Shia Muslim. I don't think that's tied to respect. You know, I just know who I am. Um, But within that, my personal preference can't dictate. You know, especially at an urgent time like this, what kind of resources and services that we're we're providing.
1: There are so many pieces.
2: Yes, so much. (laughs) If you give me like a second to process just to kind of think about what would make the most sense. You know, I I think strategic, like I I don't know because I'm not at your university. And so I don't want to sit here and say to you, go and talk to these different offices. What I would say in the frame of, you know, working in Muslim chaplaincy and speaking to another Muslim chaplain, um, the way that you kind of indicate to a broader apparatus your um, presence being of value is, have a baseline understanding of programs and events that you would do that if five years from now you weren't there, it wouldn't just be Muslim kids who would say, no, we need this to be here. And who are those people that you could partner with that you can leverage their power, their authority, um, their legitimacy that in spaces where you're not given voice or given entrance, they're speaking on your behalf and in the most positive of ways. And that might necessitate cutting out certain things that you do now because you're thinking about it not just in the immediate, but you know, five years, 10 years down the line. So there's certain things that I would have loved to do around student leadership development, around religious services, around community service that I couldn't do in my first few years working at NYU because I had to be able to figure out in a city where everything is so expensive and it's not easy to be Muslim How do you get to year 10? How do you get to year 20? How do you get to year 30? And you'll get pushback from people um, because they'll want you to do things in the immediate. So the second thing that I'll say, there's not a direct answer, and I'm sorry, I know I talk a lot. You have to have really good self-care habits. Right? You have to be in a place where you're going to absorb a lot. Students are going to come and talk to you about their problems, their issues. They might not understand why their pain is real and there's not resources for them at hand. And if the only resource they have is you internalizing that, plus you have the frustration of individuals who have no cultural competency, no sensitivity, or they'll just tell you straight to your face that this is not important to us, not having outlets for your own ability to synthesize is gonna make it that much harder to get to, to year 10 uh, and even beyond it.
1: Uh, and, and people who bring uh, others who, uh, who do promote hate speech <coughs> should also be told that other people don't like that. Meaning, 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 meaning that, that the, 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 the expression that what you did deeply, I'm not saying you personally, you understand, what, what you did deeply offends me and I have the right to now tell you and I, I can expect that you can sit for an hour or two hours or as long as it takes me yeah. I, for me to say why that really bothered me. <coughs> so so uh, I really believe that the, um, the freedom of speech should come with the responsibility to listen. So if you bring someone who's deeply offensive, you need to fully expect that that censorship is when it's something, is when you actually prevent someone from coming. But saying that you don't want someone to come, that's also free speech. Yeah, and don't leave the Christians out. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, don't, don't, don't leave the... Yeah, I, and I hope that you understand. As a, as a, framework, as a framework where, you know, I, I mean, the work that we do is not just relevant to our, our two own. Obviously, it's university-wide, but... The, many ex- students experience a kind of uh, gap or crisis where they feel like I'm having this kind of experience at school and I'm having a different kind of conversation at home and I don't know what from school I can bring home and what from home I can bring to school. And I think that that is actually a productive kind of discomfort if it's guided.
2: I think what, what, they, what we also offer to our students, though, is modeling in leadership, right? So, you know, the man that I'm blessed to work with has stood with the Muslim community at numerous times when people have told him not to, right? And it's not just working with him, the Catholic priest at NYU, who was a mentor to both of us, who has since retired. I mean, at times when literally his parishioners were sending him death threats, uh, saying we won't come to church. I mean, there's times I would walk down the street with him and he would ask people, you know, I haven't seen you on Sunday at church anymore. And they'd say, like what church? And they'd be like, what do you mean there's this big white church there? We used to lease space in the building, the basement of it. And they would say, that's not a church, that's a mosque. right? But I think to exemplify leadership in certain ways, so on the academic level, engaging in the theory, implementing a pedagogy that allows for that type of understanding to be in a classroom environment, but the co-curricular elements allowing for us to now show them actually how to do this in meaningful ways uh, so that they can in turn start to carry it out. And I think the advantage of being in a university setting is that we're getting people from all over the world and they're bringing global issues from everywhere, but we too then are privy to conversations beyond our campus community that have us now speaking in places where we might be the only ones of our background, but it's starting to set a certain standard and uh, in impact in, in different ways. And then our students are being encouraged to go into this line of work, not in the form of clergy per se, but through whatever professional pursuit they're seeking, understanding that this isn't an add-on, but it's something that has to be very much synergized. And we see it, and one of the things that I think is really important to understand, our work is not Muslim Jewish specific, right? Our university, like many universities in the country right now, are having very difficult conversations just around diversity on a whole, and how that ties to elements of race, ethnicity, and privilege, and it's not to be redundant, but I would tell you that a lot of the challenges that Muslim students face on campuses across this country have nothing to do with anything dogmatic, right? It, it, it's, you know, it's not, it's a product of many other things that are just symptomatic of things that we're not having conversations about, but universities are now having them uh, because they see the realities that, that are coming from it, and we're privileged to be in a place where we can participate in conversations much beyond our direct uh, constituent base.
0: I would say it's been a great privilege to have both of you here today. Uh, I want to thank you and also thank Farhan Latif who is here. Farhan, would you just stand up a moment so we can see who you are? Um, No relation uh, to Imam Khalid Latif, but- uh, We look alike. Look alike, yeah. Uh, uh, Both, uh, um, and uh, Farhan is with the Al-Hebri Foundation. Uh, That uh, is responsible for enabling us to bring the two of you here. We are so grateful for your words I'm glad this is videotaped because there are many many people who are not in this room at the moment who need to hear the kind of conversation you have been having and Think about these issues in relation to the university and happily for the rest of us uh, We're going to move back after this nice refreshing break uh, to hear about uh, the campus crucible with uh, four people who have been involved in campus uh, teaching and uh, in campus uh, religious leadership. Thank you, uh, Thank you, Rabbi Yehuda and Imam Khalid. What a great thing.